of John, chapter number three. The Gospel of John, chapter number three. For a few moments, I want to minister about the gift of salvation. John 3, beginning with verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Come on, let's sing that song of prayer. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving, I'll be a Sanctuary for you. A number of decades ago on the African continent, some workers in a mine had uncovered what was the largest diamond that hitherto had been uncovered in that country. Quite naturally, all the employees knew about it. When word reached management, and finally the bosses were told, there were a lot of people that were going out of their way to get that diamond shipped to where they were. But the owners of the mine living in a western country decided to have it shipped to where they were. They rented some rail cars because it was going to have to go by ship. They hired some armed guards. And these armed guards had to accompany this specially made chest in which it was placed. And they took it by train to a particular location, loaded it on a ship, brought it back here to the States. When it finally made it to the States and they placed it on another rail car and sent it to where it was going to be housed, thousands of people had gathered to see an uncut diamond about the size of a basketball. People were excited about it. And as they brought that chest and placed it in the center, it says that they opened it up and lo and behold, under that armed guard and everything, that chest was empty. 
And of course, the people's excitement turned to shock and astonishment, and people were wondering what was happening, and you could hear the murmuring in the crowd in the middle of all of that somebody brought to them an old cardboard box that had postal markings all over it. And they pulled back all the wrappings and all of the tape that was on there, and there inside was that diamond. And the mining management had made the statement that all of the lavish stuff regarding the chest and the armed guard and the special rail cards was all a ruse because we knew there would be people looking for it that way. But we trusted the post office, sent it in an ordinary manner, and nobody ever expected that the most expensive diamond up until that time had made its way to this nation. Isn't it interesting that you, you can look beyond the wrappings to find something so precious? And we take the time today to consider how wonderful and how beautiful salvation is. That God would come in the form of man, draped in human flesh, in order to come and to redeem and to save. We know that his value is beyond compare, and we understand that all of us desperately need the salvation that he provides. Only he provides the kind of deliverance and rescue from sin that every individual needs. And Moses, in this illustration in John chapter 3, is providing us with a beautiful example. The children of Israel had been complaining to Moses about their hunger and their thirst, and they said, you brought us out here to kill us. And in the midst of all of that murmuring, the Bible says in Numbers 21 that the Lord sent serpents, snakes, in the midst of all of this mass of people, and with the venom in their fangs, these snakes began to bite people, and one by one, they began to die. Now, you've really got to be able to imagine this. Thousands of people, thousands of people, more than a million people or better, and snakes appear out in the midst of that desert place, and people are dropping all over the place. They've been murmuring. They've been complaining, but in agony, wailing, screaming. And God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to make a bronze a bronze serpent, and I want you to put it on a pole, and I want you to take that pole and walk in the midst of the people and tell them that everyone who looks upon this fiery serpent on the pole will be healed. And that's what happened. He took the time, he crafted it, and as people began to gaze upon that pole and they looked at that snake, lo and behold, the very thing that was killing them became a matter of life and death. They were healed. I've read that story plenty of times and I've wondered, as Moses was preparing that pole, how many people were dying as he was building it? As he was fabricating it, were there people yelling at him, saying, hurry up and get it done so that people could be made whole? 
But you think of the process of salvation. The scripture says Jesus appeared in the fullness of times. For thousands of years people lived in sin. They lived to themselves. They thought they were smarter than God. They lived their life in such a way that what God required and what God desired was of no particular importance to them. How many people live like that in the world today? Religion is only necessary if they feel like they need it. There's some people in prison today, they have religion only because they're in prison. You open the prison doors, they do their time, they get out, they forget all about God. There are a whole lot of people that have a crisis kind of faith because, because my life is in shambles, because things seem to be falling apart. I'm now interested in God. Don't think I'm condemning them or you or anybody. Here's what I want you to know. Whatever will drive you to looking at Christ lifted up on the cross is wonderful. And I'm happy that anybody would take the time to cast a gaze upon a Savior that hung on the cross to die for their sins. Because I know that immediate healing comes when you look to him. No matter how you've been bruised, no matter how you've been wounded, regardless of how many people have hurt you or cursed you or spoken evil of you or abused you physically, whatever there is inside of you that is combustible, if you'd only look to Jesus, you'll find he still heals broken hearts. And a lot of people forget that. People try to heal themselves in a variety of different ways. Some people think if they just drink a little more, they can drink their sorrows away. It's not going to happen because eventually the drunk's going to wear off and you're going to feel the same again. Some people think if I can put something in my arm, that'll make me feel better. Now the government wants you to think if we can just put a little marijuana in a patient's, in a patient's mouth, they'll feel better about themselves because it'll numb them to what's going on. But eventually the high will wear off. And we're right back in the same condition. But there's something about coming to know Christ and having a relationship with him and receiving him as a savior that turns everything around. The individual life, the marriage, the home, our relationships with one another. So this is why the scripture says in John 3, that as Moses was lifted up, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up in every church service, in every gathering where the saints are. Jesus should be magnified. Jesus should be exalted. Jesus should be lifted high above the earth in all conversation. Jesus should be exalted. Amen. And people should know that he's Lord of your life and Lord of mine. There are a lot of people that are never going to go to church, but they will look at how you live and read your life. They will look to see if Jesus is hanging upon the pole of your life. They're listening for Jesus in your conversation. They're looking for Jesus in your actions. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So in your wilderness, in your sphere of influence, amongst the people who dwell with you, is Jesus lifted up in your life? Can people find healing by spending time in your presence? John went so far as to say that whoever believes won't perish. Now that's good news. Because you know as well as I do, people die every day. And we live with deaths and funerals just like we 
live with birth and with marriages and so on. But John had a very good idea when he was articulating what it was we needed to know about the king. The love of God is so great that he loved the world, all of the world, more than 250 nations on this planet, more than 7,000 languages spoken on this planet. God only knows how many tribes there are on this planet, and the scripture says he gave his only begotten son. He sent the most precious gift wrapped in ordinary human form. And all anybody has to do is uncover the gift to discover the value of the gift, but once you take the time to discover how precious it is, you'll never want to give it away. That's why Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a man that discovered something precious in the middle of his farmland, and he went out there, sold everything just to dig it up and be able to have it. How precious is the king to you? Would you sacrifice your relationship with God for a boy, for a girl, for a man, for a woman? Would you sacrifice your relationship with God for a promotion? Would you compromise your values and your virtues just in order to maintain a relationship with someone that you know has no relationship with God? Are you willing to turn your back on those that know God in order to be with someone who doesn't know God? I've seen it again and again and again. But God's love was so great that he sold his son into the earth to receive a harvest of people who would believe. You can walk around with seed in your hand, but you don't get a harvest till you plant it. And once you put it in the ground, at the right time, something comes up. You can run around the house and run around the yard and tell everybody, I've got seed, God, going to do something great for me. But until you put it in the ground, nothing is going to happen of any significance. And we can tell everybody we know Jesus. We can tell people we've gone to church. We go to church regularly, infrequently. We can tell people that I have a Bible and I read it every now and then. But until that salvation, until the word of God becomes something that's planted in your heart, you will never get a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of peace. What would you do with a gift like this? What will you do with a gift like this? A bishop by the name of Morgan told the story one time, it's a powerful story, of a Dutch pastor and his family who were hiding Jews during World War II. And as the story goes, they eventually were discovered, and one night they heard the, the boots coming to their door. The Nazi men were coming, and they were impatiently knocking on that door, wanting them to get up and come and answer it. And of course, the Jewish people they were hiding were discovered. The pastor and the family were arrested. They were placed upon a cattle car. They were stripped naked, jammed in there, just like animals. And under the cover of darkness, they had to just go down the tracks on that cattle car Knowing that they're going to their place of execution, they didn't know if they were going to Auschwitz or some other particular place. But they knew once you got on that car, that cattle car, that you took off and you never returned. 
Well, finally, after a long night, the train did stop. The doors opened up, and the sunlight finally came in on all of those naked people who were embarrassed, and they were forced to stand outside along those railroad tracks, and they stood there awaiting their captors who were going to take them to the place of death. But lo and behold, they had received some good news. The people approaching them were not captors and executioners, but liberators. Because in the middle of the night, that train engineer who was in charge of what direction the trains were going on the tracks, he flipped the switch. And so rather than the tracks directing that train to one of the places of execution, sent the train right off to Switzerland and notified the people a train was coming. And here they were standing there so ashamed, but now they're free. You talk about a new lease on life and another opportunity to live. I'd like to know if, if, if you were on that train and you know you were headed for death and then you were freed, what kind of life would you live for the rest of your life? And you think of your life before you became a Christian. You were a slave to sin. I was a slave to sin, incarcerated in bonds and chains of iniquity. But then by the power of the mighty Holy Ghost, Jesus came and he set the captive free. What kind of a life are you living now that you know that? And having come into that experience, can you really say that you're making good on Jesus' death? Can you really say that you've gone out of your way to live consistently, to live faithfully according to the biblical standards that he's placed in front of us? He so loved the world, he gave his son. His son so loved the world, he gave his life. What will you do with this gift? What have you given? What will you give? This is what John is trying to get over to the reader. He says everlasting life is real. It's true. And he says in verse 17 that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's true. Jesus came into the world to deliver, to rescue, to save. But even though he didn't come to condemn the world, there's no doubt condemnation is certain. The Bible says anybody who does not believe is condemned already. The ancient Greeks believed in mythology, talk about Damocles and the sword of Damocles that takes vengeance and takes lives. And every man or woman on this planet that doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't even realize they are walking with a death sentence over them every day and every moment they're breathing. That you don't need me to inform you of the hell that will be the site of arrival when a person passes from this world without Jesus Christ, but you do need me to let you know that there's a way out of all of that. That God has placed one obstacle after another in front of us to impede our progress toward hell. That he has provided a salvation that is great, that is grand, and he said all who receive and believe shall inherit everlasting life and not die. 
But day after day, we see people reject God's love. We see people reject God's word because they are intent on living their own life. In fact, some people think like this. Well, I've seen a whole lot of Christians, and Christians, after all, are hypocrites, and I don't see why I need to be part of a crowd of hypocrites. And of course, you know the answer is very simple. I mean, how is one more hypocrite going to hurt the crowd? Why don't you go ahead and join in? But here's the bottom line. A church is really not a church of hypocrites if you've got people that love God. A church is a congregation of people that are forgiven by God, who know that they are forgiven by God, who understand that forgiveness means I've received compassion and mercy from the Lord and having received it, I need to share that with others who also are in need of that same compassion. There are plenty of people not interested in it. They just say, look, I, I, my life is happy and simple and I, I just love the way that I live. I've met a lot of people like that. I had one lady tell me, talking about her husband one time, she said, look, my husband, he doesn't like anybody. He doesn't have any friends. What kind of testimony is that? To live your life and, and to pass away and no one enjoys your presence. Years ago, right here in this community, here, I'll never forget, someone passed away. I got a phone call, said, Pastor, could you come and, uh, you know, do something here? So Tiff and I, we make our way uh, to the funeral home, and, and, and there's funeral director, there's me and Tiff, and there's a couple of people. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, there's so few people here. My wife may end up having to be a pallbearer. But I thought to myself, how in the world can you go from the cradle to the grave and have lived in such a way that you've affected nobody in a positive way that they would even want to come and pay their last respects. But do you realize this world is filled with people like that? I don't need anybody. I don't want anybody. I'm not interested in anybody. I don't need anybody's help. I'm self-sufficient. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm not interested in what anybody else has to say. Folks, I'm telling you, anybody who talks like that is on the wrong road. Wrong road. Because you will always need somebody. There's no doubt about it. John takes the time to let us know Condemnation that hangs above the heads of men and women and boys and girls isn't there because of anything he did. It's there because of the rejection of the Son of God. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that that same world might be saved. He knows the world is savable. He knows the world is redeemable. There's no one on this planet that the blood of Jesus can't save. Some of the worst wretches you can think of Jesus can save them and change their life. I recall one time I got a call, said, Pastor, could you go visit so-and-so? I said, where are they at? They told me I went to a hospital, visit a gentleman who's laying there, got to the hospital. The hospital corridor was filled with, I don't know if the folks who were family, not family, folks who were angry, they wanted to see the man die. I guess he'd done a lot of bad things to young girls or something like that. But here I get a phone call and I'm asked to go. So I get there to the hospital and I walk in, I'm coming down the hall and there's some folks there to meet me. So, well, well hey, hey, Pastor Darrell, how are you doing? What are you doing here? I said, well, I'm going to visit so-and-so. I hear he's dying. 
I need to go in and minister to them. Oh, I'm talking about turn angry. How dare you come out here and go visit? Do you know how many people he's abused and how many people he's hurt? I mean, just walk down through that corridor, all these people angry and upset with me. I walked into that room where that gentleman was. He's laying there in that bed, unable to move. He couldn't twitch, couldn't lift an arm, but he's able to blink. And I went right over to where he was, and I said, sir, I know you're hostage to your situation, something like that. And I said, but right now, I want to tell you the story of Jesus Christ. For the next five minutes or so, I just preached the gospel to him, told him about Jesus, told him about the blood, told him about how the Lord forgives, and standing right there, I said, did you understand what I just told you? If you did, I want you to blink. He blinked. I said, if you come to believe that you have need of a Savior like that, and with whatever life you've lived, you're willing to repent and ask Jesus to save you right now, I want you to blink twice. He blinked twice. I said, if you'd like me to have a word of prayer with you right now, blink twice. He blinked twice. I put my hand on top of him. I prayed a prayer, got to the end of the prayer. If you believe that prayer, I want you to blink twice as a symbol of saying amen. He did it. I walked out of the room. I didn't tell anybody. Walking down that hall, what just happened, the man died. I preached the funeral. I got up, preached the funeral, and I'm telling you, I told that story, and there was a lady who had come from back east. She knew how wicked a man he was, how difficult a man he was, how many people he had harmed and hurt. But when she told that story, and she was listening to me sitting there in that funeral home, she wept, she cried. She said, I just never would have thought that a man like that could find forgiveness on his deathbed. I'm telling when Jesus was hanging on that cross and that thief was next to him. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Somewhere there were some grieving people that that thief had hurt. Some grieving people that thief had harmed, some property that had been lost, and somebody that didn't even show up at the cross was probably sitting at home saying, I'm so glad that thief is dying and he's going to burn in Hades forever and he'll never, ever get anything good in his life and had no idea that in the final moments a Savior brought redemption. Yeah. Why would you think, why should I believe that I'm so worthy, worthy of this gift of salvation and somebody else is so undeserving. This gospel is so powerful. It can reach down into the gutter and grab the worst person, wash them in the blood, cleanse them, and make them every bit as innocent as that little baby Rhett back there. No doubt about it. In just a few moments... God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world might be saved. He said the one that believes is not condemned, but he that does not believe is condemned already. So what does your future look like? What is the fate 
that you have determined for yourself. I know what God has determined for you and for me. He's determined that we would come to know his son and be born again and live eternally with him in heaven. But what have you decided? Have you chosen to submit wholly and fully to him? Or have you determined I'm going to live with Damocles' sword hanging over my head with a death sentence imposed upon me in absentia? One day, you and I are going to draw our last breath, and we're going to stand before the king. But John said, here's the condemnation that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And here's where I'll begin to finish. If you really think about it, there is a difference between light and darkness. Light chases away the darkness. There is a reason why if you're a Christian and you're on fire for God and you're passionate for God and he oozes out of every pore and out of your conversation that people who don't believe like that don't enjoy your presence. You walk into a dark room, you turn the light on, darkness flees. People that don't believe in God, not interested in God, they're not interested in being in the presence of somebody that exudes the light of God, the revelation of God. But you get a lot of people filled with light and you put them together, you've got a lot of illumination. You get 50 people, put a candle in their hand, get 50 people and put it together, you have a whole lot of light in a place where nobody who's holding the candle at all. And once the light shines, then darkness is revealed. That's why bugs, insects, they run for the corners when you turn the light on. So a mice are trying to get away from a door and scatter and scamper out into a field when the lights come on outside the barn somewhere. Because the light chases the darkness. But we've come to a point in our life today where darkness is pushing back against the light and the people filled with the light are intimidated by the darkness. Like a little kid that won't go to sleep unless they have a nightlight or won't, won't go to sleep unless there's a light on. There are plenty of Christians right now, they're terrified by what sinful people in the world are saying and sinful people in the world are doing. Well, if we're Christian, they'll do this. If we walk with God, they'll be against us about that. Give rights to this group of people. Give rights to that group of people. Folks, listen, I'm telling you right now, when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, the world has no control over it. Amen. What goes on outside, I have no power of. I mean, you go into a hospital, you go into a college, you go into a high school or something like that, they, they may very well let, let, let a man participate in girls' sports and let him win all the awards and get all the trophies. I have no power over all of that. But I can tell you this, he that placed in the book the words that said, have you not read in the beginning that he made them male and female, when they come through the doors of the church, they're going to hear me preach the gospel. There's not going to be any alteration, no deviation. It doesn't matter if the governor or the mayor doesn't like it. We won't change the book one way or another. There has to be a dividing line between what is light and what is darkness. And the men and women that don't know the difference between the two, but try to sympathize with the darkness, is not anybody trying to help the kingdom of God. Well, Brother Darrell, don't you realize that 
Everybody has a right to love anybody they want to love. No, they don't. It's not a right or a privilege that comes from the Bible. It comes from God. It doesn't come from God at all. You say, give me an example. There's a man in the Bible who's a king by the name of David. David had several children. Had a son by the name of Amnon. David had daughters. And because this man David had different wives, he was the father of a lot of children. The children were half-siblings, but one brother fell in love with his sister. The Bible says he raped her, sexually assaulted her. And of course, David, he found out about it. And you know what? David didn't do a thing. Didn't do anything. David was hard on giants and he was hard on other nations, but he wouldn't judge his own household. And so the Lord made it plain to David, because you're living like that and you're acting like that, you're going to have war and strife and division in your household all your days. And that's exactly what he had right up till he died. And even when he was laying on his deathbed, he had one son he appointed king and another son trying to take over the kingdom at the same time. While he was dying, division. So no, you, you can't give sympathy to sin and then believe that God is involved with the sympathy to sin. It was the nation of Germany while I was traveling a few years back. I read in their local newspaper where they threw out the incest laws because a brother and sister had married and had several children together and they didn't like their children going to school, elementary school, and being stigmatized and shamed because their mother and fathers were brother and sister. Folks, I'm telling you, the book says that isn't right. And I don't care how culture changes. I don't care what larger cities or small towns say. Ultimately, we've got to come back to the cross and proclaim the book. It's not about my feelings or your sympathies. What does the Lord say about it? That's all that matters. Because if you don't go by the book, you'll be changing as your feelings change over and over again. Come back to the cross. Let the cross be the centerpiece of your life. And you'll find that you won't get lost because of how God is directing you. There has to be a point where like the salmon, we start swimming back to the place where we were born. Back to the place where the spawning took, took place, occurred. And you've got to come back to Calvary, come back to a place of self-denial, the crucifixion of self-will and flesh, and place your own desires at the foot of the cross and say, God, what is it that you want for this old raggedy life of mine? And if I can place it at your feet, God, you can lead me, you can guide me, you can direct me, and I'll be everything that you need me to be. Admiral Richard Byrd spent four months in the Antarctic, down there at the South Pole. And he was there during a period of time where he didn't see a single sunrise during that four-month period. Sometimes he'd get restless and step out of that little makeshift hut that he had and just go kind of wandering around just to get a little bit of fresh air. But one day he got to walking out across that frozen tundra and his pleasure soon turned to concern because he realized he'd gone so far that he couldn't remember what direction that hut was in. But he knew he had been walking for three or four hours. He came inclement weather, 
It's a blizzard, snow coming, but he had a tall walking stick. So he took that staff and he plunged it right there into that ice. And he said to himself, I can walk two or three hours in that direction, two or three hours in that direction, and at least I know I've got to be in the vicinity of my hut. So that's what he did. In the midst of that storm, that blizzard, he started walking, went out, came back, never did see his hut. Went out again, never did see the hut. Went out three times, never did see his house. Finally, the blizzard led up, and off in the distance, he was able to see that hut. Went back, got that walking stick, and went on home. And here's a man that was telling that story in his book, and he was making it very plain that had he not had that stick as the center from which he traveled in return, he could have got lost out there and froze to death. And I want you to understand that 2,000 years ago, folks, those Roman soldiers, they drove that cross into the ground. And it doesn't matter where you go in your relationship with God, how much you learn about God, how educated you become, how miseducated you become, don't you ever move so far that you can't look and see where that cross is. Don't ever move so far out here in the storms of life that you lose track of where Jesus is. You hold to him, and I promise you blessings will be upon your life forever and ever. And I want you to think about that because God has ordered our steps today and given us an opportunity to be here. And there could very well be one or two or more who somehow along the way lost themselves and just need to return to Calvary. We need to get a glimpse of Calvary. If you let God do that, you'll find that the blessing of the Lord will be upon you. Amen. No doubt about it, folks. To know him is to love him. The more you love him, the more you want to know him. There's no doubt about it. Let's all stand. You may be here today, and that life isn't where it needs to be. You don't have a thing in the world you need to prove to me. I can promise you that. I'm nobody. But I do know this. When you put that head on that pillow tonight, you need to know that you know God. You need to know that you're safe and secure in the righteousness of God. And so I do want to pray. My pastor always told me, you always take a trip across Calvary's mountain because you never know. There may be someone that doesn't know the king, maybe running from the Lord, maybe backslidden, but all heads bowed, eyes closed, if you're here today, you don't know God as your Savior, but you certainly believe you need to know him in a real and a wonderful way. Or maybe you've lost that passion and backslid and turned away from the king. Pastor does want to pray for you today. And I'm just going to ask you at this time, if you'd be so kind, if that's you, if you'd be honest enough, earnest enough to slip your hand in the air, I'm going to pray for you right there where you are. Is there anybody this morning that says, I do need God? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God's a wonderful God. He's a wonderful Savior.
Heavenly Father, you saw every hand. You saw every hand that was extended to you, Lord. You know the reality of this salvation and how powerful it is, God. And so, Lord, when we think about those that are here this morning and have heard this message and have contemplated the word that was ministered to them somewhere the Spirit of God was at work, Lord. So, Father, we pray that from this moment there'd be that beautiful return to you and that lives would be changed. Let their commitment to you be firm. Let it be strong. And, Father, I pray they'd be rooted and grounded in you. Let them, O oh God, be in the midst and be found in fellowship every week in which it's feasible. Because, God, we honestly adore you and worship you. Now, before we leave, everybody, let's just lift our hands and just worship him and praise him for a few moments. Tiff, you've got a song there. Play